Well, good morning. I pray that each of you had a, a great Thanksgiving week, and uh, I hope that you are all able to reflect upon the things that you were thankful for. Even though it's a, a secular holiday, I know our family took some time reflecting on Psalm 136, uh, just being thankful for the steadfast love of the Lord, which endures forever. Uh, but I'm glad we are all here today. I'm sure many of our bellies are still full, uh, but I hope that you will stay awake as we open God's word together. And uh, it has been quite a while. I thought it hadn't been, but then I realized the last time I had a chance to open God's word uh, up here was in the summer. And it is not the summer anymore. It is quickly approaching 2022. But we are going to be continuing on in the book of Jonah. So I'd invite you now, if you have your copy of God's Word, to open up to Jonah chapter 3, where we are going to be spending our time together this morning. Now, over this past summer, uh, I spent a week up at Shiloh Bible Camp, where we're going to be having our winter camp this year. And I had the privilege of spending a week with some of their summer missionaries And I had a chance to prepare them for the work that was set before them that summer. And so the study I chose for us to go through was the book of Jonah. And so in six sessions that one week, we went through the entire book of Jonah. And by the second night, as you would imagine, the missionaries knew that there was one thing they had to do. And that was watch Jonah, a VeggieTales story. Now, it is a very entertaining movie, but I have to tell you, it is not a documentary. Big Idea has allowed for some inaccuracies. In VeggieTales, the Ninevites are depicted as arrogant peas with a tendency of slapping one another with fish. But I have to tell you the truth. Jonah was not an asparagus. The Ninevites were not arrogant French peas, and they were not just known for inconvenient fish slapping. In fact, Nineveh was the Assyrian capital, which was well known for much more. They were well known for their expertise in torture, their ruthless warfare tactics, and even more so, they were known as being a nation that was steeped in idolatry. They were the epitome of evil. And so it's no wonder that Jonah, the wayward prophet, would first burst onto the scene in Jonah chapter 1 as he is fleeing the clear call and command of the Lord. Jonah knew all too well of that sadistic warfare, torture tactics, and unapologetic idolatry that was to be found in Nineveh. Their ruthlessness in and out of battle was unparalleled. In fact, it was all too common for the soldiers of Nineveh to carry home parts of their defeated enemies as trophies. In fact, the king of Nineveh made it a regular practice to carry home the head of the defeated king so that he could place it on the gate of Nineveh. But... Even more so, their unapologetic pursuit of false idols was evident. 
They worshipped false gods such as Ishtar or the fish god Dagon and the fish goddess Nanshi. Perhaps this is the reason that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Perhaps in his heart he believed that these evil people he had heard so much about were beyond the saving grace of the Lord. Or perhaps it is in his flesh, Jonah didn't want these people to be saved. Perhaps he believed that what was most fitting for such an evil people was the full wrath and judgment of the Lord. In fact, that is actually seen later in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, where Jonah notes that he knew, he knew that if he went to Nineveh and proclaimed the word that God had given to him, that God would be gracious and he would not bring about the destruction that Nineveh surely deserved. Unfortunately, as I say this, I can't help but think of our political climate, and the views of so many of us at this time. So many of us look at the culture that surrounds us and simply think there is no hope. We are beyond repair. There's no way that God could redeem a world like this that is so covered in sin. There is no way that God could ever change the hearts of so many leaders who are blinded by their own sin and selfish ambitions. It could be that in our hearts we genuinely believe that the world and unbelievers around us are beyond repair. Or perhaps, like Jonah, we in our flesh don't want them to be saved. Could it be that when we look at the evil around us, we at times simply ask for the swift hand of the Lord's judgment? Now, I wouldn't presume to know your hearts today, but I can honestly admit that there are times when I, in my flesh, desire the judgment of the wicked before I take the time to pray for their salvation. This morning, as we jump back into a journey that focuses so greatly on God's sovereignty, we're going to see that that the sovereign hand of God is emphasized by the fleeing prophet Jonah. So much takes place in such a short book. If you will remember with me, the story began with a clear call, a clear command, and absolute disobedience what the lord called jonah to do didn't align with what jonah wanted to do in his heart and so instead of willingly being obedient to the lord jonah defied him instead of going to nineveh he fled towards tarshish though tries he might to flee the presence of the lord Jonah could never escape the sovereign grasp of God's hand. We see this as as Jonah got onto the ship that was struck by a great storm. His guilt is then revealed to the sailors on the ship. And then eventually Jonah is cast into the sea. And as Jonah sank into the water, we still see God's sovereignty is on display. 
We see this because just as Jonah is about to die, a fish comes and swallows him and delivers him safely back to the shores of Joppa. And then finally, after all of this fleeing, all of this disobedience, Jonah goes to Nineveh. After the undeniable power of the Lord has been on display, Jonah goes and he faithfully preaches the message that the Lord has given him. This morning in Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, I pray that each of us will be encouraged as we see that the Lord can change even the heart of the most sinful man. And I also pray that we will be convicted as we examine the actions and motivations of our own hearts. Let's start this morning by reading Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10 together. It says this, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, your sovereignty is on display here in this passage. Truly, it is throughout the entire story of Jonah, which is not just a story about Jonah, God, but a story of you. Lord, I pray that this morning, as I share from your word, God, that your power would be on display. God, I pray that every single one of us here would be convicted and convinced of your sovereignty and that each of us would be challenged to consider the way in which we choose to live our lives. But above all, Lord, I pray that this time now you would be glorified and honored. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So we see that Jonah, prior to this passage, Jonah the prophet has proclaimed the message of the Lord, finally. It's taken a while, but he got there. He proclaimed the message that the Lord has given him. And what we see is that the unthinkable has taken place. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, the Lord is able to bring a great revival throughout the entire city of Nineveh. And as we relive the story of Jonah, 
what we're going to see today is that this passage is broken down into four distinct sections. And each of them is helping us to answer the question, what happens when the Lord brings salvation? And during our time together this morning, we are going to see four results of the Lord's salvation. First, beginning in verse 5, we see that when the Lord brings salvation, there is a dramatic response of faith. When the Lord brings salvation, there is a dramatic response of faith. The portion of the narrative that we are going to spend our time focusing on this morning picks up right after the impactful words of the Lord as delivered by the prophet Jonah. Jonah only preaches what amounts to five simple words in the Hebrew language, which are this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But what we see is that these five words lead to the conversion of an entire city, a city of over 100,000. In the first part of verse 5, we see Nineveh's first hint of conversion is on display. All we are told is that And the people of Nineveh believed God. That is all we are told in the beginning of verse 5. We see that the simplest call of Jonah is paired with the simplest answer of belief. Yet we can't move past this response without realizing how truly dramatic this response of faith is on the part of the people of Nineveh. Even the extreme wickedness, even the profound sin of Nineveh is nothing, nothing in comparison to the sovereign saving hand of God. In this passage, we could say that the spiritual state of Nineveh could be likened that to those spoken of in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. What we see in that passage is. Those who were not believers were dead. They were dead in their trespasses and in their sins. They were defined and explained as children of wrath. But God reaches down to the people of Nineveh, who, like those mentioned in Ephesians, did not deserve God's grace and God's mercy. They were still immersed in sin, and God caused them to believe upon himself. The gospel is proclaimed, and then there's a response of faith, which clearly shows us that that God is at work, and he has worked profoundly in the people of Nineveh. I can't help but read this portion And think of that small part of the KFCA Bible study cycle as I look at Nineveh's dramatic response of faith. Nineveh was very similar to the sailors that we learned about previously earlier on in chapter 1. They had great head knowledge of who God was. They knew the claims of his deity, 
They knew the works that he had accomplished for, for and through the people of Israel. They would have been the rock star of that K portion of the KFCA. They would have had all of the facts down and memorized. But before the intervention of the Lord, neither the sailors nor the Ninevites had moved on to the F. And the F here is so important because it is the place where you go from knowing factual information to believing something wholeheartedly in faith. What we see in the first part of Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 is the progression of Nineveh from that K knowledge to that F. They had knowledge, but now after the words of the prophet Jonah and after the transforming work of the Lord has come, they have truly believed what they have heard about God and about his character. And what we will see through the remainder of our passage in Jonah today is the full progression, actually, of that KFCA cycle. They have had knowledge. They now exhibit true and wholehearted belief. And soon what we will see is that it leads to transformation of their character and of their actions. Now, at the beginning of this day, if you had told Jonah of the great revival that was about to take place, I'm certain that there's part of him that wouldn't have believed you. But the message of the Lord goes out, and the people of Nineveh respond in faith. Friends, today I want to call you to remember something very important, that nobody... No one, no matter how wicked or evil they may seem, no one is beyond the reach of the Lord. No one is beyond his saving sovereign hand. We must remember, we must long for and pray for others to hear the simple message of the gospel and respond in faith. No one is beyond the sovereign hand of the Lord. Jonah was not. Nineveh was not. No one is beyond the hand of the Lord. Now, this dramatic response of faith that we are to long for today in our culture is the first profound way that we see the result of the Lord's salvation. Secondly, what we will see is that when the Lord brings salvation, there is a godly grief over sin, a godly grief over sin. Let me read the remainder of verse 5 and then verse 6 again for us. It says, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. What we now start to see taking place in the remainder of verses 5 and verse 6 
is a total transformation of the people of Nineveh and Nineveh down to their very core. What we will see is that the whole city is going to show genuine signs of their recognition of sinfulness. We see that the people of Nineveh, they trade their normal food for fasting. They trade their ornate attire for sackcloth. In fact, the very mention of the people adorning themselves in sackcloth happens three times between verses 5 and 7. And this repetition is meant to show us, to show the audience, the severity of the grief that had struck the people of Nineveh. The revelation of their sinful state is so great that it grieves the whole of the people, even to the powerful king. This is a man who would have, in his natural state, been callous to his sinful ways, dead in his sins. This is a man who was battle-hardened, filled with sin, and certainly a slave to sin. But what is his response? His response is to leap up from his throne. He trades his beautiful, ornate robe for sackcloth. And he trades his gemstone-covered throne for a floor and ashes. He is destroyed by the revelation of the greatness of his sin. And his greatest worry in this moment, the greatest worry of the king of Nineveh, is not just the impending destruction of himself and his people. Rather, what we see here is what is actually spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. And there it says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now here in speaking as one who has both experienced and responded to godly grief, Paul lays out for his audience the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. This is the godly grief that is shown here in the people of Nineveh and will continue to be fleshed out through the remainder of this passage, specifically as we observe the life of Nineveh's king and all of its people. And make no mistake, what is displayed here by Nineveh is godly grief. It is not worldly grief. For worldly grief has no spiritual concern. The only focus of worldly grief is the personal consequences which a mistake will bring. And as it says, 
will ultimately lead to death. What is spoken of here in Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 through 6, it reminds me greatly of King David. Especially in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. What we see there, what the audience learns and knows has taken place is one sin on top of another on top of another. David keeps doubling down. Here in chapter 12, King David looked upon Bathsheba while she was bathing. And he had a great desire for her. And this, of course, was complicated by the small detail that she was a married woman. And so, as a way of remedying this situation, David sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, off to battle. And positioned him in such a way that he died in battle. And David did so, so that he could then marry Bathsheba. But what we see is that in the presence of all this sin, someone steps forward and recognizes it needs to be addressed. We see that the prophet Nathan, he becomes indignant about the presence of this sin in the life of the king. And he goes to David and confronts him. But he does so in a very unique way. He tells him a story. And it's a story that ultimately leads David to, without knowing it at first, admitting his own guilt and sin. And after admitting the wrongs he had committed, Nathan begins to then express the judgment that would befall David and the whole of his household. But then something profound happens in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And in this moment, in, in light of his sin, in light of the coming judgment sent against David and the whole of his household, David admits the greatness of his guilt. But this is not simply an admission that, that David has messed up and made a mistake. Rather, what we see or are to recognize in this passage is that the greatest grief of the heart of David the greatest burden to his heart is that he has sinned against the Lord. His transgression has been against the Lord. It is here when faced with the greatness of his sin that David actually exemplifies for us godly grief. His greatest worry in this time is not his personal experience of punishment that is to come. Rather, the greatest grief of his heart is that he has wronged his creator. The greatest grief of the heart of David is that he has gone against the one who, whom he has so often claimed to love and serve. 
And the godly grief that is shown here in the life of David is, is clearly on display in the life of the Ninevites. They are not simply worried about the destruction that is coming against them. Rather, what Nineveh's greatest distress is here is that they've sinned against a perfectly holy God who has called them to be perfect and obedient. That is the greatest grief of their heart. And what we see in the life of the Ninevites is still true today. Conviction of sin and godly grief is what is needed in the life of the one who will truly turn to God. We, like the Ninevites, we need to take the time to examine the repentance that takes place first and foremost in our lives. And at time when necessary in the lives of others as well. We must do our best to identify, is this genuine repentance? Is this repentance spurred on by godly grief where the Lord is at work, where God is at work in our hearts and is changing us? Or is it fraudulent repentance? Is this fraudulent repentance that is characterized by worldly grief where man alone is at work? This morning, as we're learning that four results of the Lord or what the four results of the Lord's salvation are, we see the second result is that there is a godly grief over sin. And then thirdly, we are going to see that when the Lord brings salvation, there is a turning from sin to God. There is a turning from sin to God. In verses 7 through 9, it says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from the evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What we see is that the godly grief of Nineveh is shown in the turning from sin and turning to God. In verse 7, we see that the mourning of Nineveh, it continues. And we get further detail about what that mourning looks like. We see this in the decree of the king of Nineveh. And this is, again, the one who has recognized not only his guilt before the Lord, but the guilt of the whole people of Nineveh. A fast is decreed throughout the whole land. And this fast is to impact everyone. The king, the nobles, the men and the women, even the beasts of the field, even the livestock. Here, the great totality of Nineveh's repentance 
is shown in this. They're mourning. They're mourning from great and small, king and commoner, man and beast. Here we once again liken what is taking place among the people of Nineveh to that which is meant to take place throughout the process of the KFCA, as I mentioned earlier. There has been confirmed knowledge. Nineveh certainly has believed that there's one true God and that they are in rebellion against him. And they've also believed this so much so that it has changed the very desires, the very affections of their hearts. And so it will also change their actions. And this is shown in a couple of different ways. First, we see Nineveh forsakes food and drink. They no longer desire just to satisfy their flesh. Now their greatest desire is to show the agony that they are experiencing because they have wronged the one true God. And second, we see that Nineveh puts off evil and turns to God. We see this especially in verse 8. Nineveh exemplifies their genuine repentance because the king tells the people to turn from their evil ways and to turn from the violence that is in their hands. And as we we read that, I couldn't help but think of something Pastor Thomas talked about this morning, which was Romans chapter 13. Especially Romans 13, 13 through 14, where it says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Just as in Romans chapter 13, what we see is that Nineveh is challenged to make no provision for the flesh. They are not only to recognize and confess the sin that they are actively participating in, but they are also to put barriers in place to keep them from returning to that sin. And third, Nineveh reveals their motives for turning from sin and to the Lord. In the decree of the king, we see that this turning point from sin is it's genuinely motivated by godly grief. And this is shown clearly in the king's decree, because when the king speaks, note what he says, because he is very intentional about his words, as is the author of Jonah. The king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent. There is no certainty here for Nineveh. There is no certainty that if they repent of their sins, confess what they have done, and turn to live a life honoring to God, there is no guarantee that God will not still bring judgment upon them. And the king is well aware of that. That is why he says, Who knows? God may relent. He may turn and relent. What we see here is genuine repentance. This is not some last second Hail Mary 
play. This is not just one last shot. This is genuine repentance. Now, as we read a few months ago as a church body, we we saw in Acts 7 through 9 a similar example of one who turns from sin and turns to God. And it's a story that many of us will be very familiar with. And that is the conversion of Saul changing then to Paul. Now, Saul, who would become Paul, was raging against the Christian church. But what we see in Acts chapter 9, verses 5 through 9, is a great transformation. An amazing transformation. Christ appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, and a miraculous conversion takes place. And upon this conversion, Saul becomes Paul, and the man who was once breathing what are described as murderous threats against the church is now going to become one of the biggest figures in the growth of the early church. Much like Paul, the people of Nineveh not only had genuine belief and heart transformation, but it led to a change in character and actions. Paul didn't confess Christ as Lord and then turn back to persecuting the church. He did not proclaim Christ as Lord and then go back to breathing his murderous threats. Rather, there is a distinct change in his life. Paul goes on to write 13 of the books in our New Testament. And he goes on to suffer for Christ, even to the point of death. In the same way, Nineveh did not recognize their sin and then make no plan to keep that sin from taking over their life once again. They did not just turn from that sin and decide, okay, no, I will not pursue good now. Rather, it says they were challenged to cast their evil actions from themselves. Why? So that they might truly live in a way that is glorifying to God. And as believers who long to see the actions of the unsaved change dramatically, I say to each of us here that we need to be willing to live as unapologetic examples. One of the best witnesses we can give of the need for a transformed life is going to be living the transformed life. It is not the only, but it is a great witness. And as we long for others' lives to be changed, we must walk as examples of genuine repentance. That must be on display in our lives. We cannot make any provision for the flesh. Rather, we must make every commitment to pursuing and living a life that is dedicated to the Lord. Now here today, as we observe these four results of the Lord's salvation, we see genuine salvation from the Lord is accompanied by a turning from sin to God. And fourth and finally, what we see is that when the Lord brings about salvation, 
there is a relenting of consequences. When the Lord brings salvation, there is a relenting of consequences. Let me read the final verse for our time together this morning. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Chapter 3 of Jonah It concludes with God's sovereignty on display once again, which seems fitting as that is the theme of the whole book of Jonah. This time, as the sovereignty of God is displayed, Jonah's greatest fear comes true. The evil, the wicked, the malicious people of Nineveh have now been saved. They will not face destruction No longer will God judge them harshly. Rather, he has relented and he has shown them forgiveness. What we see taking place here is that the repentance of the Ninevites has been deemed genuine by and acceptable to the Lord. God looks down upon them and knows this is genuine repentance taking place and thus it is acceptable to him. In fact, this very moment is addressed by Jesus later on in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Specifically in Matthew 12:41, when Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees who have asked him for a sign, this is Jesus' response. Listen carefully. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here those same words are then later on said in Luke 11:32 but but these words spoken by the Lord are not only showing the faithlessness of the scribes and the Pharisees as they as they were in the presence of someone much greater than Jonah. They were in the presence of the Lord. But what we see here is the confirmation that the repentance of Nineveh in the time of Jonah was genuine and acceptable to the Lord. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 tells us God saw what Nineveh did. It says... God saw them believe, he saw them respond in mourning, and he saw them making no provision for their evil desires. And God, who is later described in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, as gracious, as merciful, as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting of disasters, that God displays his very sovereignty. He displays his very character in a way that everyone can see. In the year 1910, uh, there was a system put into place that is very common knowledge for all of us today. And that was the parole system. It was created because there was a growing desire not only to punish criminals but also to rehabilitate them. 
The logic behind the parole system was that if a prisoner is able to show remorse for their actions and there has been an observable change in their character, that they should be able to appear before a parole board and petition for early release. Now, this was created as a very gracious and merciful process. This was one that was meant to make it so a prisoner who was showing a changed life could go from imprisoned in a cell to free in their home. Now, of course, as we will see with any man-made analogy or institution, this is going to fall short of explaining the profound grace and mercy and working of our Heavenly Father. But it gives us a slight picture. Because what we do see take place is quite similar to a parolee and a parole board, is that Nineveh, upon believing in the Lord and grieving the greatness of their sins, were then willing to turn from evil and do the deeds necessary for repentance. And we see in this instance, because God enabled them to repent, the Lord has graciously relented of the disaster that would come. Today, we must take the time to recognize what God produced in Nineveh is what was required for their very parole. He changed their hearts. He changed their actions. And he did so in such a way that they were no longer destined for destruction. And every believer here today needs to rejoice because we know God has done the same for us. He has produced in us that which is required for our parole. We are free from the wrath of God, which was once rightly deserved. We are free for the first time because what God has done in our lives. Praise God for that. Glory to God for that. He is the only one deserving of that glory, honor, and praise. This morning, brothers and sisters, the, the sovereignty of God has been clearly on display. And especially, we've seen the sovereignty of God over salvation. Because though we do play a part and we are responsible, God is still sovereign, even over salvation. We have examined the four great results of the Lord's salvation. That there is a dramatic response of faith, and if there's a dramatic response of faith, it will lead to a godly grief over sin, which will then in turn be followed by a turning from sin to God, which ultimately then results in a relenting of consequences. And this morning, as we've seen a positive example of responding to the saving work of the Lord in the people of Nineveh during the time of Jonah, we also don't have to look too far to observe the absolute opposite, just a matter of years later in the same people of Nineveh during the time of Nahum. 
Jonah speaks clearly about grace and mercy extended from the Lord to the people of Nineveh. Yet the prophet Nahum speaks to his audience of the deterioration of the people that are in Nineveh. So much so that it will lead to great judgment from the Lord. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, God's character is on display, just as it is in Jonah. Nahum 1, 2, and 3 speaks of how the Lord is slow to anger. He is great in power, just like we see in Jonah 4, 2. There's a difference here. In this passage in Nahum, it is also emphasized that God is avenging. God is wrathful, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. In fact, Nahum 2.13, we see that the Lord through Nahum identifies Nineveh at that time as guilty. They are an unrepentant party, one that God is going to oppose. It says he will set fire to them and surely destroy them. Just as the repentant life of Nineveh in the time of Jonah led to the Lord relenting of consequences, so too the refusal of the same people of Nineveh to live the repentant life during the time of Nahum leads to their very destruction. What we see through the books of Jonah and Nahum are two different responses to the call of the Lord. And each of them, of course, has a different result. But each of them is still firmly under the sovereign hand of God. And today, as we meet here together, we do not know which of those two types of generation we are living in right now. It is completely within the sovereign hand of the Lord to bring about an amazing revival in our country and in our world right now. One that could change the most hateful of people, those breathing murderous threats against the church, changing them to devout followers and servants of the one true king. But it's also possible we could be in a time that will experience the hand of the Lord's judgment. We do not know which generation we are. But whatever generation we are a part of, we must recognize this, folks. Our calling is the same. Our calling is the absolute same. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. No matter the generation, we are called to faithfully proclaim. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We must now brothers and sisters, and always be faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel and ultimately to remember this 
that salvation belongs to the Lord.